Before we get started, a quick disclaimer, this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any investment. With that, hello and welcome to the Rangely Capital Podcast. I'm Andrew Walker, Portfolio Manager at Rangely. With me as always, my co-host and Rangely's founder, Chris Demuth. Today is our first podcast of 2018, and given it's the start of a new year, we have a bit of a future-themed podcast. First, we'll talk about Berkshire's announcement this morning and what it means for Warren Buffett's future successor, and then we'll pull out our crystal balls, try to gauge into the future, and make some predictions for 2018. So Chris, let's start with uh, Berkshire. This morning, they came out with a pretty big press release. They announced that they were promoting Ajit Jain, the head of their company's reinsurance operations, and Greg Abel, the CEO of the utilities business, to the company's board of directors. They'll both be named vice chairman of insurance and non-insurance operations, respectively. Each of the managers will have the business units in that section reporting directly to them instead of Warren Buffett. And you know, Warren Buffett did an hour-long interview on CNBC this morning, and he said, look, look, it's not a horse race between the two of these to win the top spot and take over the CEO role once I'm dead. But obviously, the first thing every Buffett watcher kind of saw once this announcement came out is it is now a horse race between these two to be the CEO once Buffett is gone. And they made that pretty clear in the interviews and everything. So I'll turn it over to you. What do you think of the move in the interview? And what does the move kind of mean for Berkshire's future? I've long been on Team Ajit. I'm a huge fan and admirer of his. But I think that uh, he's kind of been the Prince Charles of Berkshire Hathaway. He's gotten old uh, while he's waited for his first job running everything, or at least the top job. I think that this was an astute move, getting them ready organizationally. I hope Warren Buffett lives as long as possible. Actuarially, that looks about five years. So having half a decade to kind of prepare two people makes all the sense in the world. I think because of specific health issues and just generally age, Abel is the person who would be named tomorrow at this point point. And there's not much more disclosure that's necessary now to the public. Uh, the fact that Jane's overseeing insurance and Abel is overseeing everything else kind of carves out Jane's topic. Uh, you could imagine in a world where Jane was being prepped for the top role, Abel would have energy or some specific portfolio to him and Jane would have the everything else role. I'm with you. You know, I think not only do you have praise for Ajit Jane, I mean, Buffett said before, if there's a boat and me, Charlie Munger and Ajit Jane are on that boat and you can only save one of us, save Ajit. He's the one who's made Berkshire the most money over time. I think 10 years ago, a lot of like astute Buffett watchers thought Ajit was probably the most likely successor. Maybe some people thought David Sokol, he obviously left in disgrace, but I, I think you're exactly right at this point. Just the age difference. You know, Buffett said he wants somebody who can come in and replace him for a long time. He doesn't want lots of CEOs. So I think that 10 year age gap makes Greg Abel much more likely. I do think it's interesting separating insurance and operations. Maybe it's because he didn't want to hurt Edgy Jane's ego, you know, by promoting someone else to vice chairman over him when he's been so important to Berkshire, both in the past and going forward. But it does kind of leave open the possibility that once Buffett dies, the company is really easy to split into an insurance division and a non-insurance division and do some type of financial engineering spinoff if it's just too big for any one person to manage in that going forward. What do you think about that? Buffett was saying as recently as today, but has kind of intimated this elsewhere, that Warren Buffett is not going anywhere, that he wants to have an influence into the future. I think that this is his plan. And of course, the biggest decision he gets is the CEO now. So it further emphasizes having a young, healthy person who can be there for a very long time to 
keep his hand on the tiller as much as possible. Also, horse race has to be added to my list of topics where when somebody <laughs> talks about it, the thing that they are nominally saying is never true. When you raise up two people and you say, it's not a horse race, it's always a horse race. It never, You would never say that phrase if it were true. Before we uh, move on, I don't know if you watched the Buffett interview or if you saw some of the clips of it. Was there anything surprising there? I, I, I was a little surprised by his commentary on on taxes, but I'll, I'll turn it over to you first. On many measurements, this market looks at least fully priced to me. Listening to Buffett and reading his body language, he's more comfortable with it or bullish perhaps than I am. He describes all of it stipulating that we have really low interest rates, which I think is a big stipulation that certainly could change. But he sounded very confident, robust, optimistic about the markets here. And his description of tax changes, which was really no nothing more than just going through the basic arithmetic, mm-hmm. is just incredibly bullish from here. And he seems to think that there's uh, more to go in terms of the market's reaction to it. Yeah. So I, I was surprised by how bullish he was on t- on tax reform. Look, he went through the whole analogy. Look, yesterday, the government was a 35% partner in your business. Today, they're a 21%. And, you know, I think he kind of walked that back a little bit later in the interview where, you know, I think a lot of that eventually three to five years from now, I think a lot of that tax reform gets competed away, especially for commodity businesses. Berkshire does not own a lot of commodity businesses. They own a lot of good businesses that I think can keep that tax reform. But I was just a little surprised. He said, look, this wasn't the tax bill that I would have wanted, but I I would have voted for this because, you know, in my role as CEO, I would have to do it for Berkshire because it was so good for Berkshire. I was just surprised to hear him come out that strongly in favor, both bullish on the tax reform, bullish on it for the markets, because look, he's a progressive. He he's, was a big Hillary Clinton supporter. He's talked a lot of different times about, he had a Time Magazine article out last week where he said, look, this economy to a lot of sense, it, it's really boosted the wealthiest. Uh, you know, I, I was a little surprised that he would have been this big on a bill that I think is really designed for wealthy incorporation. Rhetorically, he's a progressive, but everybody is a conservative when it comes to their own lives and their own business to exist and survive evolution. And he's one of the most astute tax planners, uh, minimizers in his own personal life. But Berkshire's a big taxpayer, and it is phenomenally good for Berkshire yeah. Hathaway. It, you know, if you just think, hey, these guys had a $35 billion, I, I, I'm just pulling the numbers out of nowhere, a $35 billion deferred tax uh, liability on their balance sheet last year, that drops to $21 billion. Now, that's $14 billion. It, it's tough not to love a tax bill that just cut your what you owe by $14 billion. So I, I think that's exactly right. If he's ahead of this analysis compared to where the market is, I think the least likely thing he could do, he could, you know, in terms of uh, looking at Berkshire and and uh, thinking about its balance sheet is a dividend, which there's still reason not to. I think the f- a far more likely is just to increase the relationship to book value at which they would be willing to buy back shares. Yeah, I'm with you there. And look, I think we've heard a lot of people come out. I, I agree with you. The stipulation is stocks look fairly valued if interest rates stay this low. Look, they, they've been low a long time. If you look at Japan, like anyone who calls for interest rates to go higher in the future is they're kind of betting against a... It is very difficult to call when interest rates go higher. Do they go higher over time? Maybe. It's difficult to call that. But a lot of people have been coming out and saying, look, tax reform plus these low interest rates, stocks are the only game in town and they, they look cheap 
combined. Anyway, let's turn to 2018 predictions. In our last 2017 podcast, we talked about our predictions for Berkshire in 2018. Now that 2018's here, let's blow it out a bit more broadly. What are your predictions for 2018? You know, we can do predictions that you think are near certain locks. We can do predictions that you think are a little bit out there, but you think are much more likely than kind of the common expert would think. I'll, I'll turn it over to you. What do you think? I'll take off just a few thoughts in my mind about things that might happen this year. A longer list means at least maybe one or two of them will happen. And then I have a, a near lock for you likely and then out there. Activism will be strong again, especially in Europe, really a big uptick, especially amongst American activists trying to push around stodgy European companies. Some of that was quite successful this past year. I think that's going to continue, especially anti-deal shareholders where there are bad deals. Example of this theme, Elliot going back after a Qualcomm's NXP deal for a bump and really coordinating with passive holders to get uh, more control of these shareholder votes. So I, I certainly agree with you, though I do think there is Qualcomm's offer for NXPI is a deal where it looked cheap to begin with, and then semiconductors were up 40% in the meantime, so now it looks super cheap. I think that's one example of an undervalued deal. I also think there's the Carl icons of the world who have been going against companies that say, hey, we're going to buy that company, and they strike a really bad deal, and they actually buy the buyer and say, hey, we're going to vote this deal down and break this deal up on the buyer side. I think that's a trend we're going to see a lot more of. I 100% agree. If you look at the Sandridge uh, Bonanza yes, uh, uh, killed yeah. off deal, uh, one thing that's very convenient about it is you have so much price to discovery about the pre-deal price. So if you lose 20, 30, 40% yeah. of your market value for something that's voluntary and something a shareholders control, all you have to do is go back to presumably get much of that value back, or maybe even then some because you've organized the shareholder base against a management board that's not maximizing shareholder value and then push further as uh, Icon's doing in that case. If you're a management team and you announce a deal and your stock goes from 100 to 98, you're probably okay. You know that, That's kind of typical. If you're a management team and you announce your stock goes from 100 to 80, you can expect a lot of shareholder calls and you can probably expect an activist. It's, it's almost by definition an enforced error. It was voluntary, so yep. it should be reversible. I think it's going to pick up a lot in the financial sector, which is only about 8% of activist capital this past year. Oh, that's a really but interesting thought. when you look thought. at companies that should not exist as standalone companies combined with the huge benefit from tax reform. This is an area where the company shareholders will own, have access to in the way that Buffett was describing more of the profit. You could do things stupid with that, well thought through deals, for example, or you could do something that should be at least as good, if not better than just buying back shares. And so what decisions the boards and managements do within this financial sector, companies will make a big difference. Activists will be watching carefully. No, look, I'm going to build off that one. I think that's exactly right. I think there was a delay in bank mergers because they were waiting to see what the tax rates were, how much their tax assets were worth. I'll play off that one. And my my biggest prediction would be 2018 is going to be by far the biggest year in history for corporate M&A. You know, 2017 was a good year, but volume was kind of even or maybe a little up over 2016. But actually, the total uh, deal value was down because there were no real none of these really big mega mergers. I think 2018 is kind of a once in a lifetime M&A opportunity when you look at valuations are still kind of full but reasonable. Interest rates are low for maybe one or two more years before the Fed really starts raising if, if projections are right. But you've got these open debt markets. You've got reasonable valuations. M&A synergies are going to, a ton of them are going to fall straight through to the bottom line because because of tax reform. And there's these fame companies that are taking over the world. And every company is looking around and saying, we need to get bigger. We need to do something to build scale, to compete 
with these fang companies. I think the combination of all of those things, plus a light touch regulatory regime, is going to result in this year and maybe 2019 being just the biggest years we're going to see for decades in terms of M&A. That makes sense to me, and I hope you're right. I'll t- I can turn it over to you, or I can expand on this point a little bit more if you if you want. Let me just tick off three things uh, quick, because I wanted to make sure I get in go, 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 your go, go. answer to the lock likely and out there, and then I have uh, some silly ones if there's extra time. I think that there are times when companies have a strategic political reason to downplay new huge advantages they have on the public policy front, where they want to downplay the benefit from taxes, downplay the advantage from some deregulation that's going on, because drawing attention to it could lead to a backlash. And that's very interesting, because then sometimes you might have the markets underreacting to how big a deal this could be. I think there's going to be a new big policy advantage for certain companies in the US this year, where it's very clear to me that come the middle of the year, probably by uh, sometime in June, uh, we could see the real, really the end of private sector required uh, union dues uh, coming out of the Supreme Court. There's a big decision, Janus versus American Federation. It's going to be a replay of a decision last year. But with Gorsuch, a 4-4 court should become a 5-4 court that is probably going to throw out union dues uh, that will really make a huge impact on a bunch of companies. You think of the autos. And so my lock is that the unions really declined this year. Very likely that the autos benefit and the out there one comes back to a Berkshire that Berkshire ends up buying one of them. Buying one of the autos. Yeah. You know, I, I could see it. The the autos are even after a big run kind of towards the end of the last year, they're kind of cheap. Berkshire's bought GM. So they've clearly rethought that, that a little bit. It's a more capital intensive industry than he's used to. He's trying, he's tend to avoid them, but you know, things are changing. Uh, autos could be at the kind of intersection. If you think about self-driving cars, the way those play out, it, it could be awful for them. Or if he's got an insight, it could be fantastic for them, you know? So I think that's a, that's a very interesting one. Why don't you keep going into yours? The other thing that's coming out of the Supreme Court, I think it's quite likely that they toss out the federal sports betting ban. So anybody interested in sports betting, I think that that's really going to come back. Uh, the casino companies in Vegas have been really behind it, but I think that that's going to come to an end this year. Look, I think every this is an area I follow closely. I think every sports league has come out, except for the NFL, has come out and say we're in favor of some form of legalized sports ban. I think a lot of them would prefer, instead of this deal going through, if the government would just put in some form of regulation. I think it's huge bullish for sports companies because you know if you ever played fantasy football your engagement and your investment in football goes up once you've got a fantasy football team when you can put money on the line i think you're going to see a lot of engagement go up i think it's probably great for tv companies you know those sports rights are going to be more valuable because people are more engaged in them there's going to be a lot more pre-game post-game analysis shows because they can focus on the betting angles so i think that's exactly right that segues well into one of mine actually i think a major tech company is going to bid a huge sum and get the rights for a major domestic sports league. A lot of people have said Amazon just buying all of the rights to uh, NFL Thursday Night Football would be one, mm-hmm. but I think there are a lot of others. We've already seen tech companies start to dabble in sports rights. Uh, Amazon has the Thursday Night Rebroadcast rights right now. Facebook and Amazon have both bid internationally on, on sports right. Actually, Rupert Murdoch said one of the reasons he started thinking about selling Fox to Disney is because Facebook bid a pretty nice sum for cricket in India, and 
he realized, whoa, if we don't scale up a lot, then all these guys are going to come and run us over. I think that's one of the reasons we're going to see continued consolidation in media. But uh, yeah, I think I think that's exactly. I think the sports betting will be huge for sports. I think they'll be huge for sports rights. I think they'll be huge for these companies and the synergies between a tech player getting sports rights, being able to target advertising, and combining that with sports betting will be big. I'll turn it back over to you. Yeah, no, I think that's uh, Amazon again for one moment. I think that Austin's looking a little better for HQ2. They've been doing some lobbying in Georgia, but there's been some problems recently with the Atlanta bid and with the elimination of salt deductions on or the capping, the low cap of salt deductions on high tax states, uh, having it a income tax free state such as Texas. The argument was originally good. That argument now is great. Mm, great. Uh, they, let's keep going. I think we've got 30 seconds or a minute left. If you want to throw, throw any last ones out there, I'll, I'll give it let's to you. Let's see. Venezuela collapses. Lessons will be insufficiently learned. And it really shows a petro state and its dying gas that is no longer even able to produce enough oil for its own people. Its oil has declined. The uh, last month was the lowest in many, many years. Uh, it would be a lesson, a cautionary lesson for Russia and other petro states. Uh, but Venezuela is kind of on its very last gasp. Uh, soccer scores will mostly be zero. Zero, zero this year um and uh is, aren't soccer I, I mean i actually quite like soccer during the world cup and stuff but aren't most soccer games zero zero isn't that the, and, and, not and, most and, but that is the most common score i just right? noticed from twitter updates that i get when they get kind of every 15 minutes kind of new score update and it's often zero zero so i figure that'll continue on to the next year that's probably a uh, a near lock perfect perfect uh let's see i, I think I'll, I'll give some more just last second specifics you know i i mentioned media but i think pharma is poised for a huge year of M&A. We Absolutely. didn't see a lot of farmer deals last year. The common, They are a perfect tax reform beneficiary. They are not growing anymore. The need for growth there continues to grow. They've got great balance sheets. They can finance huge deals. Already this year, we're hearing a lot of rumors out of pharma that they're looking at big deals. So I think that's one media as the tech companies come in. I think we're going to see huge media M&A. And we've talked about Dish a couple times on this uh, podcast. I think this is the year Dish probably gets acquired. They've got about 24 months to use their spectrum. Their spectrum is increasingly valuable as we look for, towards 5G. And all of their potential bidders just got huge increases in valuation because of tax reform. I, I think this is the year that Dish uh, Dish gets acquired. Last one for you. No, I think we should leave it at that. I think Dish is, uh, is, is a good one. I'll, 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 endorse, uh, I'll endorse your view on that. Perfect, perfect. So that's all the time we have for today. Before we hit our disclosures, just a quick reminder. If you like this podcast, please be sure to follow and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Audio Boom. In terms of disclosures, we're long NXPI, Berkshire, and Dish. I think that's it. Am I missing any, Chris? Nope, nope that's it. Okay, great. We will talk to you guys next week.